This morning, I just want to invite you to begin to worship the Lord. The Bible says that he inhabits the praises of his people. God is looking for worship around the earth, and he's looking for those who worship him because he wants to infuse himself into the expressions of our adoration and faith as we honor God, as we glorify him, as we say with passion who he is, as we declare not only our faith and love for him, but we declare who he is, God manifests himself. So in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we want to say to you today, Lord, that you are great and greatly to be praised. And we say, Lord, fill this place and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Let every eye know and see who you are. We declare you are the great God. We declare the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You conquered hell in the grave. Hallelujah. And we draw near to you, Lord. You know, when <clears throat> you're actually in love with someone, you don't sit back home on your couch just, you know, kind of the thinking about how much you love them. The only thing that satisfies it is being right there. Is being right in front of them, is grabbing them, is is kissing them, is it's just being embraced, being in direct contact with that object of your affection. There's nothing else that can satisfy. And so I feel this morning is that I've been tiptoeing around actually going into that place of real intimacy with God. There's there's a place that is so so united, so together, so one. That, that, that God is trying to call us into. And if I feel like, I feel like emotional right now, it's because I kind of am. But I really, 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 really want to be in that place this morning. I really want to be in that place with God this morning. Just the, 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 the anything else is just not going to satisfy me. So Lord, we say this morning that we don't want to tiptoe around the edge. We don't want to just dip our waters our feet in the just shallow parts of the water. We long to go to the deep place. We long to go to the place of like the inner chamber where you are. The outside, the outer courts, while they might be okay for a season, you've called us to the inner sanctum, the place of true intimacy. Why would you use this language between a, a bridegroom and a bride? Why would you give us these verses of intimacy between lovers if we weren't meant to come and commune with you in a way that is so close? And so this morning, Lord, I pray for a, a release and opening up that we might enter in to the fullness of love in closeness and proximity with you. Anything else just will not satisfy us. And so now I give myself to going to that place and not singing about you, not just talking about you, but talking to you. You are beautiful. There is nothing else that will satisfy. You are everything to me. Everything good comes from you. I love you with my heart, God. And it just frustrates me that, it, that I can't just give, to my, give the way I want. But I'm asking for your mercy and your grace that this morning, this very morning, would be a morning that we can come together in perfect unity. I feel like God is, for the last number of weeks, been offering us something something of unusual value, something of unusual depth. The precious things of the heart of God are the greatest treasures 
that he can give. And he is slow to give them. Keep playing, guys. Keep playing. He is slow and careful to unfold the deepest treasures. In the same way, you would not give a fragile million-dollar piece of crystal to a baby or a toddler to play with. The precious things of God are held close to his heart. And when the people of God are being led by the Spirit of God to begin to say, Lord, I want to know your heart. I want you to know that that's not given without cost. And that's not given recklessly. And as we were standing here, I began to get the sense again of Israel as they stood before Mount Sinai in their first encounter with God and how God gave them experiences in degrees. Moses being given the greatest access to God and then uh, Joshua, then the Aaron and the elders of Israel, then the, the people were kept at the base of the mountain. And we see again and again and again in the New Testament church that our capacity for intimacy is limited. But it's not limited because God is vindictive. It's not limited because God is saying no. But it's limited by our capacity to be obedient. It's limited by our capacity. Keep going, guys. Keep going. I need a prophetic sound. It's limited by the capacity of the people to be obedient. Because sometimes we just want to know the mysteries for the sake of knowing the mysteries. Sometimes we just want to know so that we can know more than others, so that we can relish in the knowledge. And there's a scripture that says that those who are ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And the church has been locked into places of limited influence because we want to know for the sake of knowing, but we have no desire to be obedient equal to the knowing that's being given to us. And God is saying, listen, why will I give you knowing above what you are ready to be obedient to? I will not. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And so, Lord, we want to say we don't know. We don't know how to furnish, how to create that desire within ourselves, even to obey. We don't even know, Lord, how to appropriate the grace to walk in your, the faithfulness that's required at this next level. But, Lord, we, we know that you are going to have a generation of volunteers. You are going to have a people who will do your will. And we prophesy today that we are going to be that people. We prophesy today in the name of Jesus, according to Psalm 40, that we delight to do your will. We delight to do your will. We say, God, do not let us go. Do not let us go, Father. We don't want to be satisfied. And so we press in, we press in, we press in. Oh, God, for more than knowledge, for more than learning, but, God, to be transformed, to be changed. Oh, God, come and change us. God, come and change us. We want to love what you love. We want, to, we want to say, I delight to do your will. I am not reluctant. I'm not hesitant. I'll not procrastinate. I'll not hold back. I delight to do your will. Lord, where is the grace? Let me tell you what's hanging in the balance here. There was a time when the prophet Samuel said to Saul, he said, listen, you're called and God's going to give you this and give you this and give you this. But Saul was not careful to be obedient.
And there came a time when the prophet came to him and said, Today, this day, the mantle's being torn from you. The nation's being torn from you. And in that moment, you know what was most important to Saul? That nobody know. The most important thing to him was don't tell anybody. It didn't matter to him that he lost the kingdom. It didn't matter to him that he lost his mantle. His anointing was being taken from him, his place. His destiny to take the nation into something was gone. And what mattered is saving face. There comes a moment in the life of the church where we have the choice of embracing the window dressing of breakthrough or embracing breakthrough. There comes a point, a point where we, there is a fork in the road. There is an opportunity to lay hold of something or we can pretend. We can go through the motions of doing what we did before and having the, 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 the illusion of breakthrough, the illusion of incremental increase. And we're saying, God, today, we do not want to pass this point. God, we don't want to lose this moment. Lord, for a cathartic moment, we don't want to lose this for a hand-clapping, joyful, dancing moment. God, without the breakthrough, we want the breakthrough, we want the shift, we want a deep change in our hearts. And I'm not saying this so that we'll languish in this place in the hopes of getting something, because I don't think we're getting it today. I think there's something far deeper, a level of transformation that God is determined to bring to a generation. And he's waiting for a people who will wait on him, who really want the treasure, the, the greatest treasure of his heart. Oh, God. Come on, release your heart. God, God, convince me of the urgency of this moment. God, convince us that there's something to be pursued. That this is the time to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. In the name of Jesus. We face this wall and we say that we're meant to be on the other side of it. <laughs> this wall should not be here. In the name of Jesus, we break the wall. God, we cry out. I'm not satisfied singing about myself. I want your glory to come to the earth. God, we pray that the angels would say as they did in Isaiah, Holy, 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 the earth is full of your glory. God, we are the gatekeepers that open up the way. And we say that we want your glory to come and shake up anything that needs to be shaken up. Uncover us. Uncover us. Let your glory come. Oh, let your glory come. Let your glory come to the earth. Let your glory come and shake the earth. Shake the earth. Just so you know the moment we're in, right before uh, Jesse came and began to pray, he said these words. He said, he said, there's something just beyond this wall or something like that. And, and, he, and he said, we want what's behind the wall or something like that. Two seconds before he said that, Derek come up to me and said, he said, the Holy Spirit said to me, these are like the days of, uh, of Berlin right before the falling of the wall. Two seconds before he said that, and then Jesse began to, I'm telling you, God is wanting to give us something. 
He's not just for us, for the whole church, but there's something just out of our reach. And the beauty of this is we don't even know how to get it. This is not prescribed religion. This is passion. This is seeking. You will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And he's been training us and talking to us about what does it mean to seek me with all your heart? It means laying down all your perceptions of dignity, all of the things you do to protect your reputation, where you, you don't want to be too excessive, you don't want to be too emotional, you don't want to be too out of step with others. Let me tell you, when you hear the footsteps of Jesus walking by and you are blind and you know that he can heal your eyes, suddenly the protocols go out the window. Now it's time to simply cry out, say, God, God, I don't know what I need to do. I don't know what I need to do. I don't know what I need to do. But God, we say, we want what you want to give us. Until your level of desperation exceeds your sense of self-worth, until it exceeds yourself of your sense of self-preservation, until your level of desperation exceeds all else, the wall will not come down. But when you reach that critical mass, that level of desperation, you won't need to scale the wall. You won't need to break down the wall. The wall will fall. For some reason, I've had this song going through my heart. And the chorus is, I need a hero. And, and I know the verse starts with, where have all the good men gone? I need a hero. And I think there's something about someone riding on a white horse. But even though that's written on a human level, I believe in some ways it reflects the desire of God for sons of God rising in the earth. Lord, we pray for the manifestation of a generation that follows hard after you. Lord, we say we want to be part of that generation that, that says, your face, Lord, I will seek. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Listen, what God is interested in today is not us learning ministry techniques. We're not learning to mimic the latest fad in the church. What he's looking for are hearts that hunger after him. <laughs> hearts that realize without you, Lord, I can do nothing. Hearts that operate with a deep, deep dependency on every breath that comes out of his mouth that says, in, in you we live and move and have our being. And I'm reminded again of that word that Paul Cain gave years ago about a nameless, faceless generation, which really speaks of a multitude of people seeking after God and manifesting the glory of God on the earth. And he said there were stadiums all over the earth that were filled with continuous worship and prayer. I'm telling you, it's not a certain technique that God is looking for. It's not a certain perfection in the intonation of our songs. It's the intonation of the heart that's zero in, that's zeroed in on him. I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke 7. This is all about the capacity of your heart. And uh, I, I probably have made it a study more than anything in my life spiritually to find out what is it that blocks us? What is it that keeps us from something different, something better, something great? What is it that keeps the church from breaking through into revival? What is it that keeps 
you as an individual believer locked into a certain level of transformation? Why do some go further and some are halted? Why do we stagnate? Why do we, what keeps us from growing in the knowledge of God? What is it, I've met people and it's, you know, you, as a young Christian, I remember seeing a lot of older folks were, were passive in their faith. They just sort of got to the place where, yeah, there is nothing else. They would never say that. But the passion, the lack of passion in life reflected there is nothing else. And yet, from time to time, I'd meet an older person who had, who had spent years and years in the presence of God, and they had that vibrancy. They had that, that, that reaching for more of God, more of God, more of God. And I thought, where'd they get that from? What is that? Is it, you know, how do we do that? And uh, the pursuit of my life is uh, realizing along the way in repentance that that could be me. That could be me that's halted. That could be me that's stale. That could be me. And so I'm looking in my life, God, what are the things, what are, what are the, uh, what's the leaven of the Pharisees that gets in and defiles the whole lump? Father, I pray today that you would give us insight into our own hearts and insight into what it is you are looking for in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Now, I've mentioned this more times than I can, I can recall, but and we use this word, it's all about the heart. But let me tell you, we, it is all about the heart. It is all about the capacity with which you seek after God. Now, I, I like to use Jesse. Jesse, come here for a second. Come here. You'll notice something as soon as Jesse gets to me, next to me. He's bigger than me. Jesse's a big guy. Sometimes we wrestle, but not really. I wrestle, he plays. Because he can't throw his all into that, or he might hurt me. Uh, I can throw my all into it and pretend like I've, you know, have a chance. But, but the size of him, you know, what are you, six? Almost six two. Almost six two. I'm almost five five. I'm five four. <laughs> so, so the you know his height plus his weight means that he's gonna he's gonna he carries a mass with him. But the thing about Jesse is he carries equally a large heart. And so, in the same way, if he were we were playing flag football or something like that, and he's plunging through the line, you know, go like this. You know, he would make a bigger space than me, you know. He would make an opening. And in the same way, when he pours himself into prayer and worship, really pours himself, he makes a bigger opening. Thanks. Uh, the capacity of your heart is, is we are given or born with or inherit genetically or spiritually genetically a certain capacity. I look at people and, and I realize that some people do not have the capacity to express their heart. And uh, so I don't even know how big their heart is. But some people have smaller hearts. Some people have bigger hearts. But it matters little whether it's small or big because you, you can't do anything about that. But what you can do is change the percentage of your heart you pour into something. And the question is, how much of what I have can I pour into a moment? How, how, how fully involved, invested in a moment can I be? And that has to do with the heart. And when you're following hard after God, there's a capacity, and then there's how much of that capacity you use. Now, let me tell you, with the most anointed people in the earth have, a, have large hearts. Now, I'm not even going to get into whether or not that heart was expanded based on obedience, which is another thing entirely, but it was. But the question is uh, not whether they had large hearts, but how much of that heart did they... See, Jesse has largeness physically, and he has a capacity to throw himself into that. If he does both, his impact will be huge, right? If I throw all of myself into something, my impact will be greater than if I throw less, but it's not going to be nearly level compete with him. Similarly, anointing works that way. 
So when you see, and this is why the religious spirit, God confounds the religious spirit because you got people who are imperfect but who have large hearts and who throw themselves into things and they're anointed in a way others just kind of, how does that happen? And then people get around them, they look for technique or they look for style or they look, they don't realize it's heart. There's an invisible uh, quotient in what they do that God loves. Are there other things about their life God would like to change? Absolutely. Is there certain kinds of moral perfection and on and on that God would like to require from them? Yes, but the rarity of a heart that big is what God is looking for. That's why uh, when, when David had that heart, God said, that's a man I can use. That's a man who doesn't care about uh, what people think. He's after, he invests himself fully. So when he sought the Lord, he was able to invest himself fully. And that's what, one of the things we're learning right now. How do we invest ourselves fully in pursuing the Lord? And what I discovered is, as a generation, we don't even know how to do that. We don't know how to pour ourselves out for something. It's not dignified to do that. You know, uh, we, we'll do it within the, if we can hide in, under the covering of, of a crowd or, or you know, if, there, if there's some ways that we can be, you know, kind of stealthy about it. You know, if there's a lot of people going crazy, okay, there's enough people to hide me. I'll dance. But I won't dance. I won't be the first one dancing. Remember that video of the, 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 the dancing man that I showed a couple of years ago? How to create a movement? Uh, so, so God is trying to change our hearts. <sighs> and I, uh, as we're learning to seek him, it's all about how much can you put yourself into this? I can't remember the name of the movie, but I've referenced it before. But it has to do, that guy, he finds that street musician that plays a cello or something. And uh, the, the soloist, and what's the name of the actor? Iron Man? Robert Downey Jr. plays the guy who finds him. And, and he's talking to his ex-wife. And he says, you know, when I look at this guy and the way he, you know, plays, the way he pours himself, he, the way he loves the cello and music, he said, I've never loved anything like that. And his wife said, yeah, I know. That's the problem. That's why we're not married anymore. <laughs> you know, but the, the point is, People have the capacity to pour themselves into something. And God wants to develop that capacity. The truth is you have more capacity than you know. You're just unwilling on some level because you're holding in reserve. Your, your heart is divided. We talked about James the last few weeks and, and uh, Jen Prater sang about it this morning. But here's the thing. How do we... How, how, does, how does this change? Other than, okay, we'll take those moments where, what if I do something wild? What if I do something crazy? And you can do that, and there is some benefit, but not totally, that that level of pouring yourself into a moment. Have you ever, have you ever seen people do that artificially? You know, it's like, man, you're way past your bandwidth here. You know, that your volume, you know, your energy is all soul, it's all strength, it's all human. Hum, your humanity is there, but your heart isn't there. And so it's not a matter of just wanting, you know, embarrassing yourself. And that's what happens, right? Some people in an environment, you encourage people, well, do it with all your heart. And then somebody does it in an artificial way and it sounds embarrassing and empty and you think, oh, I don't want to do that. So we all hold back. Does this make sense? So what, are the, what, are, what is the deeper thing that God is doing in order to shift your being? And this is, this is what I, I feel. There's something coming to the body of Christ that's going to fundamentally change who we are as people. And Father, I pray that you would unfold this today in impact in, in an even deeper way. Lord, give me the words. Give me the clarity of heart to articulate this, I pray in Jesus' name. So we have this story here. In um, it's a very familiar story, Luke seven. It says uh, verse thirty six. Then 
One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to him saying, to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. And she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Um, I've shared over the years, maybe not here, but many times about this because when I first read that as a young believer, I thought there was a, an equation that was uh, unjust in there because it seemed to me at, on the surface that Jesus was saying, if you haven't sinned a lot, your capacity to love is diminished. Right? Because, well, the one that's forgiven much, loves much, and the one that's forgiven little, loves little. So are we stuck? Are we locked into a capacity to love Jesus based on the, the amount we sinned? How much... How much we, I mean, it seems to be that's what it's saying. But let's look at it a little more closely. Now, in the parable that he gives, in the story he gives, he says this. He says, uh, <sighs> there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Do you know what the, uh, the price for, for being in debt in those days? They had debtor's prisons. And you could be locked up. They could call the sheriff, so to speak, and they come and they put you in jail until it's repaid. And then your family has to go out. I mean, it seems nonsense, right? You know, now you can't even work. But your family has to go out and, and beg, borrow, steal, or whatever, get the money to release you from jail. But the point of this here is that the two of them were actually in the exact same circumstance. It says, uh, and... And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Their circumstance was identical. They were stuck. None of them had enough to meet the need. So it doesn't matter how, how over, overrun you are. Or, you, know, you're, you don't have enough. There's no capacity to pay. You have, there's nothing that you can get, so you are... Equally condemned. 50, 500, doesn't matter the, 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 uh, the amounts. It is the sense that you are powerless. You are both equally powerless. And this is what God in the gospel has communicated to us. He said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Every single one of you has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is, there is no capacity within you to meet the requirement. No capacity. But here's, here's the thing, is that if you have done more sin, right, you carry with you the sense that you are less able to meet the, that, that mark. If you have sinned little, you, you, there's a sense of, well, you know, I, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. If you sin lots, then there's this, oh, this deeper sense of dependency. But really what matters is, is how far you think the threshold that line is that you have to meet. And there is this false righteousness that comes from feeling like you're closer to that line. And that's what determines your love, is how close you think you are. But see, here's what... Imagine this. Uh, okay, let's... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm five foot five, four, sorry. He's uh, six foot two, so he's a little closer to heaven than me. It, all right, that's about equivalent of the difference between my righteousness and his righteousness. As, but in relationship to heaven, you know, being so unreachable, I mean, the, you know, the universe with the constellations and everything, you think how, high, how far that marginal difference between his height and my height, how much in the bigger scheme of things does that, does that matter? Nothing. See, the question is not, oh, he's taller than me by this much. It's what is, how far are we from him? I mean, let me put it this way. It's a question of how righteous is God today. It, that's how far removed you feel, is how righteous you know he is as compared to you. Well, I, this is my awareness of my sin. doesn't matter. Awareness of your sin is not really the thing. What really causes you to know the gift that you've been given is discovering how righteous he is compared to your unrighteousness. So whether it's 500 or 50, who cares? Because he's just so much, so much higher. So what we need then, what we need is, is, yeah, we got our sin and issues, but we don't know how bad it is because we don't know how good he is. We need to know how good he is. So anyway, a few years ago, I was uh, at Bible college, and I'd gotten saved, and I was a, I was a person who sinned much, and uh, and so... I was known as somebody who loved much. And, you know, one of my roommates, we had this whole thing over the fact that, that I was getting all these encounters with God and the gifts of the Spirit were manifesting in my life and I was getting revelation of the Word and he'd been a Christian all his life. He'd never done anything wrong and he was getting none of that. And he didn't tell me, but I knew it. He was resenting me and, you know, he was upset. And finally, towards the end of our first year, he came into the room crying one day. And he, he, uh, he confessed everything, which, you know, that, that he had been judging me and, it, you know, in his mind thinking, this is not fair. I've been a good boy, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so so I had this, this fervor to seek the Lord. And so what happened is I quickly modified a lot of behaviors on the surface. And, you know, I was, uh, I was doing good, you know, really you know, praying in tongues, and I was reading the scriptures, and I was reading my Bible every day, and I was going to all the prayer meetings, and I was doing street evangelism, and not just street evangelism, I was going for the gays and the prostitutes, you know, the, the real hardcore cases. I was a Green Beret, you know, special forces, elite, Navy SEALs Christian. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I, I thought I was, you know, I was doing pretty good. And, uh, and that's the problem. I, I thought, you know, the, 
very quickly, my faith had shifted from what God had given me by His grace to what I could do. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't things I need to do, but it's a question of where your faith shifts. God requires obedience, but if your confidence is in your obedience, you got a problem. And so my confidence, like most believers who start to be successful, rapidly becomes, well, look at me. Look at how great I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm praying, and God must be so proud to have me on his team. He must be thinking, wow, what a bunch of losers before Mark came along. I didn't say that, but, you know, deep down I thought it because I'm praying more than everybody else. I'm zealous, and, you know, I'm witnessing everybody I can see, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I'm in my room one night, and I have an encounter with God. And when, in the encounter, I'm not going to share the whole thing, but what happened was the righteousness of God was unfolded before me. And it was the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced. I mean terrifying. Because everything in my Christian world was imploding in front of me. I suddenly realized that there was nothing I could do to equal the righteousness. And in fact, my feeble efforts, which previously a second ago had been so magnificent in my eyes, suddenly appeared for what they were, self-centered, prideful efforts to measure up to something I could never measure up to, only for the purpose of having something to hold over others. Now, I cannot explain the level of the righteousness that came in the room. But the Bible says that when he returns, men will call for the rocks to fall on them, to hide from the face of him. And that's what I felt like doing. I felt like God was putting me up against a wall and a sword was penetrating my being and I was trying desperately as I could to get away from it because it wasn't a, woohoo, God, I love you so much. It was, you don't know who I am. And when he penetrated me with that righteousness, uh, I felt for weeks, I didn't even know if I was saved. It's like, what, what do I do now? What, what is, I, I thought, do I even have the capacity to pray purely? Like, you know, so much selfishness, so much competition, so much, I'm better than you, listen to my prayer. It was in everything I did, you know, so I'm dancing and I'm enjoying the worship, but really all the time I'm thinking, if you really love God, you would be dancing like me. If you really love God, you would be more like me. If you really love God, you would be this, 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 and this. And I guarantee you, we've had those thoughts, every single one of us. We find some of these weaknesses, we say, if, if you really love God, you would be like I am, which is pretentious and shallow. You just don't know it yet. But the righteousness of God has come to penetrate and destroy the righteousness of man. The righteousness of man is nothing. Nothing at all. See, I, I believe that the difference between these two people and the reason why one was, was able to be passionate the way they were is because they knew something of the righteousness of God and their unrighteousness, their unworthiness. It wasn't, it wasn't the fact that they were that much worse. It was the fact that they knew it. They knew they were lost. It's how lost you think you are. You know, I see these videos all the time on Facebook. You got people and they're, you know, they're doing these good deeds. And it's great. You know, I love good deeds. But I remember a commercial a few years ago, people exhorting good deeds around Christmas. And they said, because you'll get a warm feeling inside. I thought, yeah, that warm feeling will condemn you to hell. That warm feeling is the only thing between you and the knowledge that you are that there is a God who is ultimate righteousness. And men are driven to do things that convince them that they are righteous enough to attain heaven. 
Oh, I'm not that bad. You know, I'm a good dad. I'm a good provider. I work hard. I'm honest. You know, whatever it is is your, is your flag, our flag, the world's flag, out there and in here, what God is trying to do is trying to create a people who are oriented around his righteousness and not our righteousness. But we have a default setting where we orient around our own righteousness. And so God has a solution for this. It's called the gospel. Let me read you a passage in the gospel. I mean, uh, describing the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul's writing, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Oh, that's great. The gospel will fix this. The gospel will get me saved. The gospel will create in me this capacity to love God. But why is it? What, what is it in the gospel that accomplishes this? The next verse tells us, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What the gospel does, what it's meant to do, the message we bring is to bring a revelation of the righteousness of God. Because let me tell you, no matter how good you are or you think you are, if you get a glimpse of the righteousness of God, suddenly your, your evaluation systems will change. Your definition of good will suddenly be reoriented. And this is really what it's about. What is good? That's why the Bible says there's none good. None, no, not one. Oh, there's some good. No, there's none good. No, not one. But yeah, but people do good things. There's none good. No, not one. Well, how, how do you convince people of that? You can't convince people of that. The gospel must reveal the righteousness of God. It is a supernatural experience. It is a revelation. The only way people are going to get saved if they, is if they get a glimpse of how beautiful and how righteous he is. Now, you know, your life could be better if you just did nice things. And then we get them on that religious treadmill of doing better and better things to convince themselves. Isn't that what religion has become? Isn't that church what church has become? And, you know, we, so, you know, we want to we wanna keep bolstering up our sense of our righteousness so we don't feel bad about ourselves. Well, I say, give it up. Let it die. Let him lay the axe through that. You, your nature, yourself, you are selfish. We are selfish. Oh, no, no, I try really hard to be good. Yes, because of your selfishness, you try hard to be good. Because you must feel better than others. Can you see this? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And it says, listen, there's none righteous. Well, you know the people who had the most problem with that? It wasn't the bad people. They knew. Oh, yeah, I got no problem with that. Now, they didn't know, they didn't know how righteous he was, which was the gospel, was, was, but they had no problem. They didn't balk at the initial message. The Pharisees, on the other hand, the religious people, the good people, the one, ones who were compelled to have, you know, to, to, to have an, an aura of goodness, and to work their way up the proverbial ladder in their society, it was a righteousness ladder, you know, based on outward shows of, of obedience to Judaism. But it was, it was all this, they were fueled, they were intelligent, they were driven, they were ambitious, and there was financial reward, there was esteem, there was social, uh, social standing, all built on how much righteousness you could, and that became, that became the pinnacle point of division between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light in their lives was, uh, are we good enough? Now, they may have systematized it, and they may have created a structure around it like nobody, no other civilization has, but let me tell you, that need to be good and feel good is inside of us. It has to be conquered. How do you know it's conquered when you're not surprised ever again about the fact that you might be evil? 
you've conquered that when you see evil in you and you don't feel demoralized or shocked or defensive about it. That's the evidence that you're not using that system anymore. If you're still using that system to prop up your sense of self-worth, then when somebody suggests there's something wrong with you, you balk like the Pharisees. You see, what God is creating in the earth is a people who embody the righteousness of God, who have, who have by revelation been transformed, by revelation have been transformed. There is a, a beauty, there is a perfection, there is something in God. Let me tell you, uh, even this week, uh, yesterday, I mean, it seems to be getting worse for me, but it's like uh, the more time I spend, uh, you know, around people, the more evil I appear. I just, you know, I just, you know, plus I got my wife telling me how evil I am, you know, it's, just, it's great. <laughs> but it, it, but I've asked God, I've asked God, God, I don't want to depend on that system. I don't, I don't want anything in my life to be insulated from the manifestation of your glory. I want to be changed from the, the heart of who I am. This scripture gives us a pattern. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. You can study salvation, but the wholeness that you're looking for, the healing, the restoration, the empowering of your soul, all of those things come through the gospel. Now, no, I won't say that. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What does he say from faith to faith? Faith to faith. Because it's incremental. It, it comes in degrees in your life. And uh, I don't know what's happening exactly in my heart, but I have an opportunity to be around people that are influencing nations, and I get to walk with international stuff. And, I mean, my heart is, oh, God, I want to I wanna be a part of changing nations. And yet I keep coming back to the fact that he's still working on me, that there are aspects of your destiny that you still can't touch because there are things in you that are still not changed. And I'm saying, okay, God, you know, I don't, I don't want to mess around with this anymore. What is it? What is it? What is it? What is it? You know, it always comes back to the same thing. How come you get defensive here? How come you need to feel good? How come you, you like it? When you succeed and other says you did other people say, Oh, you did so good. What is that in you? What is I don't know, it's all dark. I can't see where that's coming from. I don't know where that is. I thought, you know, I'm trying my best to not be that, but it's coming. I began to realize that that in the salvation, this is I believe what's coming. I believe there's coming a preaching of the gospel on a level that's transformative like the, the generations of the church have never seen since the first generation. I believe, and this is what I began to see at different, at the heights of revival, I saw the impact of the gospel go into people's lives and, and the ones that were around that heightened revival, they carried something for all of their life that others didn't seem to carry. And I keep, I keep asking God, God, what is that? What is, what is that? I said, there was a manifestation of my glory at that time. It did something deep in them that others missed. But it's all building up to a time when my glory was go is going to be revealed, but it's going to be revealed first in a people. And there's a people who are going to experience the glory of God and be changed in the most phenomenal way. And I... I, I was thinking, okay, well, how do we do that? Well, he said, well, listen, can you, can you take the full breadth of the message? Let me just pause here for a second. Do we want the full message? You know, the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's none good, no one. Yeah, yeah, I've been bad. Uh, I'm not good. Yeah, okay, good, got that, 
we've, we've done it. No, no, no. No, there's none good. Yeah, I heard you. Oh, I know I'm not good. Do you have to rub it in? Yeah. We want to rub it in. Well, just how deep does it have to go? To the bottom. To the bottom. Well, how do I know if we're there yet? The, all the, everything else I said in the previous part of the message. See, when I, I would read about revivals and I would read about these, these manifestations of God, I remember uh, people sitting and, and the preachers would preach and there would be this, this atmosphere that would, like radiation, penetrate their being. And they would feel in the light of the righteousness of God the unrighteousness of their souls. And yet the preacher didn't give them an easy out. Just pray this prayer and it's done. Why? Because there is an effect. There is a deepening of the remorse over your sinfulness because you are appreciating. with The revelation of his righteousness is showing you just how deep unrighteousness is. You're becoming increasingly convinced that there's none good. It's not just about saying the words. It's about a deep shift in your heart away from you and onto him. Not 1%, not 5%, not 15%, 100%. The deeper that message goes in you, the more profound your transformation. So the preaching of the gospel has to reveal, the, well, isn't the righteousness of God, isn't that that God just loves us? Well, that's in it, but again, when I saw the righteousness of God, immediately I saw what I was not. The first thing, everything I defined as righteousness was immediately obliterated before my eyes. Oh, this is not righteous. None of this is righteousness. I thought, you know, hey, how you doing? I thought that's what was being good, you know, being nice. I'm a nice guy. Hey, how you doing? I'm saying this just to gain advantage of you. I, I didn't see the motive until that, so therefore I couldn't see the unrighteousness in the good things I was doing until the light of God penetrated those things in a way it, never, it had never happened before in my life. That's what the gospel is meant to do. When we stand before the Lord, everything, the secret intents of the heart will be revealed. But that can happen on earth. That's what the preaching of the gospel is supposed to, is supposed to accomplish. So there are degrees of this and I was thinking about it the other day. Even the world is realizing this. And they're realizing this in the area of criminal, criminology and crime and punishment and that kind of thing, where, where now when somebody's being charged with a crime where they've assaulted somebody or stolen or done, they, they, they allow an opportunity for victim impact statements. Do you know what victim impact statements are? That's, you know, somebody, somebody broke into my house or, or hit me or struck me or raped me or whatever it is. At their sentencing, I go there to tell the court and the person what the effect of their sin, or what the effect of their crime was on me. And the person, oh, yeah, I'm bad. Yeah, I did a bad thing. I don't know. Have you ever done that with your kids? Say sorry. Sorry. Are they really sorry? Is there any real repentance if there's no remorse? If there's no acknowledgement of the transgression? Is the reconciliation genuine or authentic at all? Is it? There's no authenticity without, an, without knowledge. And so in a courtroom, they're, they're reading victim impact statements so that the depth of how wrong this was can go in in order to, for the hope set, A, the, you know, the, the jury or the judge will not take it lightly, but that the, the person who needs to be rehabilitated recognizes the wrong that they've done. And that is a sort of a shadow of the pattern of the gospel. The pattern of the gospel is knowledge, the knowledge of God, the righteousness of God, that when you see it, suddenly it begins to set a new order for what righteousness actually is. Then you realize there's none good. There's no not one. I'm going to pause. I'm going to stop right away. But, you know, when I got saved, I got saved. Part of what happened when I got saved is I realized I was not a good person. 
Because I, I grew up like everybody else. I got our grandkids over yesterday, so I was thinking about this. And our grandkids, you know, you talk to your kids, and, you know, we're talking about guns, and, well, you know, we, we shoot the bad people. The, I'm going to shoot some bad guys. And we, so we, we nurture in them the idea from the time they're young that there are bad people out there, but they are good people. Right? We just we create this idea. There are bad people. Here, here are the characteristics. This is what they do. This is what they look like. So don't do or look like that. And so I had grown up like that. And I, you know, my parents always said, well, these are the bad people. Be careful, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, so I watched for signs, you know. And I remember at one point I was, we were in our backyard. We were in Baggettville, Quebec. I think I was uh, in grade four or something. And we were out in our, and there was a couple teenagers over and making out in our neighbor's yard on the blanket. And my mom come out and shoot us in the house, you know, and, um, and kind of, you know, looking like this. Uh, oh, okay, the bad, bad, good. And it was uh, a few years later, I was at a friend's house, and we were all partying and smoking dope and taking acid. And we brought the speakers outside because we couldn't hear the music enough blaring from inside the house. So the whole neighbor, and we're out there, we're just... You know, we're not hurting anybody. We're just having a good time, right? And, and anyway, there's some kids playing in the next, next yard. And all of a sudden, I see a parent come out like this and looking over at me. I thought, oh, I'm the bad person. I, I remember, you know, uh, all, all my young years, the warnings about alcoholism and everything. And, you know, and I, I remember thinking, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I, well, I drink excessively every day, but I'm not an alcoholic. That's people who don't have jobs, <laughs> right? You know, you, you organize the information to always come up on top. That's, that's the bent of the, the psyche of the fallen, our fallen beings, the righteousness of God. You have to know, well, okay, I begin to entertain the idea that, okay, I might be bad, but I do good things. And that's where a lot of the unsaved are. They're caught between the, they're starting to realize maybe they're bad, but then they'll compensate. Well, I'll give 10 bucks to the Salvation Army at the, the, the guy with the dirty beard there at Canadian Tire. And I'll ride on that for three weeks. I, I'm good, I gave 10 bucks. I'm good, I didn't yell at that guy. I'm good, I, you know, we, and the, the express purpose, the only motive we have for being good as unsaved people is to believe that we're good and we don't need anything else. The gospel's come to destroy that system. The gospel's come to, to say there's none good. No, not one. That you are irrefutably lost. That there's nothing you can possibly say or do that will change the condition of your lostness. As that goes deeper, the uncomfortableness, you see this in the revival meetings, the, they would spend a week or two weeks in these tent meetings, and, and, the, and they wouldn't have, it's before, I remember before they had altar calls. When they started having altar calls, it was, altar call was like a quick fix to unresolved guilt and uh, conviction. Conviction has a, has, a, has a cycle to it when it produces fruit. But we cut it short like we usually do. We give a, oh, I don't want you to feel bad for too long. And then people pray a prayer but aren't actually saved because the knowledge of the righteousness of God, the radiation that's in the gospel has not gone to the depth of their being. And so it's caused partial transformation. I believe the apostolic gospel is going to share the righteousness of God, is going to slay in an unusual fashion, that demon of self-righteousness within mankind. Then what's going to emerge is a disciple that loves, loves much. Not because, well, I'm not the worst sinner, it doesn't matter. I have seen the righteousness, righteousness of God. I have seen the futility of my, my situation, the impossibility of reaching heaven or measuring anything up. God is so much greater than me. 
just so amazingly higher, more wonderful. Nothing I could do could possibly qualify. It's a gift. It's given. And then the fruit of that experience manifests in a life of righteousness without all of the effort we do to suppress the nature that hasn't really been dealt with by the cross. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Now, I said a lot of things today. I don't even know if any of this was significant to you or meaningful. But I feel like a quantum shift has been happening in my life, increasing and increasing and increasing. And one of the greatest fruits that I have in my life is I'm becoming increasingly comfortable with looking in the mirror and not backing away. So my faith in the righteousness of God is, it, is making it able, possible for me to look into the mirror and see what God's after next. Well, when are you going to be done? I, I don't know. Ask my wife. <laughs> so, Father, I pray that you would give us the capacity to lean into your righteousness. Father, when we talk about your glory, we, we usually talk about it in fun-filled terms. And yet, Isaiah 2 describes your glory and says it'll be terrifying. Father, I pray that you would uh, prepare us to experience your glory, that we would have the faith to endure these moments and not run for the hills. That the goodness and the severity of God would visit us as a people, that we would be changed. God, we are tired. We are tired of living in partial faith, in partial righteousness. We want to be changed. In Jesus' name. Now, let me just say this one last thing. This is not just about you as an individual. It is something that God is doing collectively on the earth. In the same way that you as an individual cry out to God, we as a people are crying out to God. And all over the earth, companies of people are rising up, desiring Him more, which is opening a door for another level of His glory to come and change us. And revival is really the words we use for that optimum level, the highest level. So we want revival, but because it brings transformation in the knowledge of God. Hallelujah.